Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. A couple of interesting stories. Uh, Logan men venturing out into the world uh, to uh, to help and to report. Coming up the second half of the uh, program today, we're going to talk with USU Assistant Professor of Journalism, Matt LaPlante. He recently traveled to Cambodia. He says that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints there, as everywhere, are encouraged to research their family history. He notes, however, in an article in CNN that in a nation cursed by decades of civil war and one of the worst genocides in history, a place where dredging up the past can be a tremendously painful experience, that hasn't been an easy sell. And we're going to talk about the difficulties of family history research and the ongoing echoes of genocide in Cambodia. In the first half of the program, Logan attorney uh, Hermolson joins us. He recently spent uh, several weeks in the Pacific Island nation of Palau, helping the legal community there to make a transition to the jury trial system. Palau uses the American judicial system, but until recently they didn't allow for jury trials. And Hermolson reports to the Logan Herald Journal that the Palauans were somewhat skeptical about a jury system. They said, why do we need one? We have a judge. One Palauan said, I don't want to judge anybody. I don't want to make any decisions about guilt or innocence. An upcoming murder trial involving three defendants spurred the Chief Justice of the Palau Supreme Court to seek help. And so we'll talk about the jury system in the U.S., the ongoing meaning of the Magna Carta as well. Hermolson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hermolson is also a member of the Logan Municipal Council. Yes, sir. And uh, a partner in the law firm in Logan of uh, Hilliard, Anderson, and Olson. Uh, so that we'll, later in this half hour, we'll get into talking about the American jury system, because I think a lot of Americans probably have could say what that Palauan said to you. Why do yeah. I don't want to be on a jury. Yeah. Right. You probably have encountered that. As that a, is true. As a lawyer. Uh, so how did you get this assignment? What's what's the connection? Well, um, you know, I, I got a phone call from the office of general counsel for the LDS church in January asking if my wife and I would come down, and that's always a chilling thought. Mm. Uh, but I think uh, my my name was provided to the, uh, the general counsel's office by a uh, retired judge here in Logan, uh, Gordon Lowe, who has served uh, uh, in many capacities after his retirement, but uh, he, I think, probably wasn't in a position to accept this assignment and and uh, forwarded my name down. So my wife and I went down, met with the general counsel, and and he invited us to uh, go to Palau. And mm. our, my first question was, where the heck is Palau? <laughs> well, that's my question to you. Where is it? <laughs> well... Uh, it's uh, it's part of the Micronesian island groups. There's about five island groups: uh, Marshall Islands, uh, Ponape, Chuuk, Yap, and Palau. Mm. Four of those five island groups, even though they all speak different languages, five island groups, five different languages. Four of the five agreed to become the Federated States of Micronesia. Mm. Palau, though, uh, chose its own path. You know, it turns out it was uh, it was uh, sort of occupied by the Germans until 1918, uh, when Germany lost the First World War. So the Allies, wanting to disassemble the German Empire. Uh, turned the Palau Islands over to Japan. Mm. So Japan occupied Palau from 1918 to 1944, 
when we bombed the heck out of them and and uh, uh, participated in a vicious, violent battle at Peleliu, one of the islands of Palau, and uh, and took over for the Japanese. Um, we then occupied, the United States did, Palau from 1944 until 1994. And the Palauans said, uh, we'd like to become independent. Mm. And the United States said, okay. So in 1994, it became its separate nation, uh, joined the United Nations, and uh, has been in the uh, colony of nations now for 21 years. Mm. But when they uh, became a nation, they perpetuated the American judicial system for the most part. Uh, but one thing they did not adopt was uh, the opportunity, the privilege, in some cases the burden of having a jury system. And uh, so uh, for 19 of those 21 years of their existence, they did not have any juries whatsoever. And uh, there were a couple of things that began to happen that uh, made them rethink that, and uh, that's where my assignment came mm -hmm. in. Why didn't they adopt the jury system? They adopted everything else in the judicial, but not the jury system. You know, it's funny because they're they are um, in some ways very much American. They while they have their Palauan language. And the old people speak almost exclusively Palauan with limited English. The young people speak uh, very much English, but still retain their Palauan language. Mm. Uh, so we had no trouble getting along in terms of communications. Well, uh, as we spoke with old people, it sometimes was a bit of a challenge. But their English was much better than my Palauan, mm. so uh, English was the coin of the realm. And uh, they literally used the American dollar, uh, dimes, nickels, quarters, uh, and and so just sort of embraced everything that we utilized, and, and we administered Palau for 50 years with our judicial system. Uh, one of the reasons they were resistant to a jury— is because um, Palau is a very small country, and in, how, how small, by the way? Well, uh, they're not sure. Okay, <laughs> but they're conducting a census, literally as we speak. They anticipate that there would be maybe twenty thousand mm -hmm. Palauans mm -hmm. uh, on any given day, probably about twenty thousand tourists. Which is essentially all that they have to offer. They really don't produce anything, except maybe a coconut here and there, and uh, beetle nuts and uh, coconuts. So mm -hmm. tourism is huge for them. But but being a small country, their perception was: we know everybody. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's related to everybody, and so a jury just wouldn't work. Uh, well, the problem was that in those uh, uh, intervening 19 years, the defense bar discovered that the judges, and there's uh, four judges 
that hear the criminal docket, uh, the four judges always convicted everybody. Hmm. And uh, and the defense bar thought, you know, uh, hmm, maybe, maybe there's a jury for a reason, hmm. <laughs> at least the opportunity to have our peers judge us. And so one little old uh, Palawan guy named Oldie Ice, little white-haired guy, wonderful human being, he went around to the 16 villages that constitute Palau and lobbied to change the Constitution to permit juries. The Chief Justice, who just goes by CJ because none of the Americans can pronounce his actual Palauan name. Hmm. Uh, uh, he was CJ for C- Chief Justice? CJ was, for okay, Chief okay, Justice. All right. And and he's known on the street, CJ this, CJ that, you know, and, and a good man. Hmm. But he was not in favor of a jury system. So uh, it became this kind of this little battle between the two, but, but uh, they had a vote. Uh, the vote approved the jury system, and so two years ago began the, be- uh, the, the process of a jury trial system. Mm-hmm. When I re- uh, arrived, there had been a grand total of three juries mm-hmm. ever held in the history of the island. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, we actually had the fourth jury trial. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and uh, I worked with Oldie old Ice, turns out, was the defense attorney for this jury trial that I got there for. And I worked with him a little bit and strategized about what to, you know, where to go with it and how. To, and I sat through the whole jury trial. And for the first time in Palawan history, <laughs> there was an acquittal. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, so that's sort of the uh, where the jury trial system is. But uh, the chief justice, to his credit, was anxious about making sure that the defense bar was competent to handle jury trials. He was not in favor of them, but when it was adopted, he said, if we're going to have them, we've got to do them right. Mm. We've got to do them well, and we need help. Yeah. So he made uh, inquiry of a retired federal uh, judge out of California, uh, Judge Wallace, and Judge Wallace contacted the church, and the church contacted me, and I said, okay, and my wife and I would be willing to go. Interesting. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Herm Olson. He's a Logan attorney who uh, got the assignment to uh, go to Palau and help to make sure they got their new jury system right. Traveled with his wife there and uh, spent several weeks, right? Yeah, uh, yeah there. about just short of two months. Uh, so uh, if you'd like to join the conversation here, you can do that at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So this must have been very interesting for you as an attorney who's worked a long time with the jury system <laughs> to, to be there at the beginnings. Well, you know, it was fascinating. Um, uh, I I became very impressed with the decency. These are a wonderful people, just friendly, warm. Uh, they're they're really quite shy and bashful, uh, 
in many ways, but uh, they just have hearts of gold. And one of the things we discovered was that whenever there was a, a group of Palauans uh, that was also had some connection with any kind of interaction with Anglo's or Americans, they got real quiet. Um, it's like uh, you know, if there was a question asked, it, the feeling was they knew we knew the answer, so they'd just sit back and wait for it. And uh, you know that was kind of hard in a way because. Uh, in some cases, you you want them to share, to express, to talk, to to tell us, educate us about them and their culture and their history, and they're uh, they're just a very shy but very friendly people. So for them, serving on the jury uh, on a jury was a was kind of a daunting prospect because suddenly to be on the jury you have to be Palawan. Mm. And uh, suddenly they're making decisions and they're deferring, uh, or, or rather judgments are being deferred to them. And, uh, and I interviewed uh, several jurors uh, after this trial and a prior trial uh, to just get a feel. How was it? What did you think? This is the—you're making history for your country. Tell us about it. And, uh, you know— Everyone with whom I spoke said it was wonderful. It was, I would do it again. Mm. Uh, uh, one juror said, you know what I really liked? When we walked into the courtroom, everybody stood up, mm. even the chief justice, mm. which, uh, you know, it, it validated them as a— as a people, as individuals, and as a process. So, uh, you know, I think it's going to work for them. But, uh, you know, every new start comes with a wrinkle here and there, and uh, that's to be expected. Now, you developed, in the Herald Journal here, you developed a curriculum. Yes. To, uh, I guess, talk to some other attorneys in, in Cache Valley. That made me think, this is, you're, you're there at the beginning, and you're... So you're selecting the most important parts of the jury system. Uh, so I imagine that made you think about <laughs> the, the jury system that uh, maybe for you would become a routine. I don't know, working in it a long time. Well, you know, I, 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 I happily uh, uh, appreciate the contributions of some of my attorneys right here in Logan because I approached them before I went. Ask them what would they want me to share with Palauans about the jury system, and and I received many very good comments from both the prosecution and from the defense bar. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I, I, one of the areas of resistance from the Palauans was, uh, why do we need a jury? Uh, why don't we just use the judge uh, and and, you know, it, it, it struck me what a remarkable uh, coincidence of time and events that is that just within the past week, we celebrated the June 15th, 1215 Battle of Runnymede, 
And people might say, what running? What the heck is that? Well, from your old fourth grade history class, you may recall that King John in England was the absolute monarch, and whatever the king wanted, the king got. And it was, uh, you know, not that King John was any worse than his predecessors, but absolute power is a dangerous thing, and he had absolute power, and as almost anyone would, abused it regularly. So the barons uh, resisted, raised an army, they had a battle, and the barons won, and one of the concessions they demanded from the king was the right to have a jury system decide guilt or innocence rather than the king. And that's where it came from. Men fought and died for this right. And I would explain that to the Palauans, and they'd go, oh, okay, so something that happened literally 800 years ago on a little battlefield on another island halfway across the world makes a difference to us. And as they put that together, it began to make sense to them, and they'd go, "Okay, maybe this is maybe this is a good thing." Hmm. What about if we bring this to America, to Utah? Um, I'm, you know, as I, I read that piece, quoting from the Herald Journal, uh, "Why do we need a jury system? We have a judge." Uh, one Palauan, as you report, said, I don't want to judge anybody. I don't want to make any decisions about guilt or innocence. <laughs> I'm sure well, you've heard that here, yeah, here I, in America. I was going to say, that's not a sentiment restricted to Palauans, okay. because uh, honestly, uh, most people here uh, do not do their happy dance if they get a notice in the mail telling them that they've been selected to serve on a jury. I've got other things to do. I'm busy. I, you know, I've got a hair appointment. I, I just don't want to do this. And for much the same reason, because they, it's work being on a jury. You have to stop and listen. You have to pay attention. You have to subordinate your own prejudices to the evidence presented. You've got to presume innocence rather than presume guilt, at least theoretically. You've got to give thought to the notion of burden of proof. Uh, you've got to try and come to an understanding of what reasonable doubt means, and then apply it to the facts of the case before you. This is not easy stuff, but nobody ever said it was going to be easy. It's just that it's better than surrendering all of those decisions to the king or the chief justice, mm -hmm. even if they're good people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I guess my biggest objection would be, I haven't served on a jury, would be, what if I get it wrong? That's my, that'd be my biggest worry. You know? <laughs> and, and especially if it's a high stakes Oh yeah, you know a trial. You're you're dealing with somebody's life. Uh, what uh, what if I get it wrong? You are. Uh, you correctly observe an anxiety that people have. But I'll tell you this: after working with juries for years and years and years, I am impressed with how dedicated, how focused, 
and how hardworking a jury is. They want to get it right. And there is a magic to this notion of collective knowledge. I mean, uh, the jury is comprised of teachers and farmers and, and businessmen and students, and they bring their own worlds together, and almost always it's basic common sense that plays out. Uh, juries can make mistakes, but you know what? So can judges. And there is a strength and a power and a wisdom to the collective knowledge that people can bring to bear on a particular problem. Uh, can we guarantee the juries will always get it right? No, but I'll tell you what. The more you understand about what a jury heard, the evidence they weighed, they almost always do get it right. It, it's kind of an ennobling process, and it's one that has its origins in the deepest roots of our tradition of fairness and decency and goodness. And we have to pay the price to make it sustain right here in Logan, Utah, or in Palau, either place. Well, that's a good place to end the conversation. We're just about out of time. Uh, maybe uh, at the end here, just 30-second plug for Palau. We could help the Palau Tourism Bureau. I assume it's beautiful and <laughs> I tell a nice you, place to go. Uh, other than the stifling, suffocating heat, <laughs> it's, a, it's a paradise. You see things in Palau you literally cannot see anywhere else in the world. It is the diving mecca of the world. My wife and I went snorkeling. We don't uh, scuba, but you want to see sunken ships and planes from the war effort. You want to see an aquarium experience, uh, and the water is warm. It's just so pleasant. It's a marvelous place to go and to visit. You'd not regret it, I guarantee Herm Olson is a Logan attorney. He recently went to Palau to help them to uh, to get their new, their fairly brand new uh, jury system up and running. Uh, very interesting uh, trip. And he's he's back. He's also a member of the Logan Municipal uh, Council, and he's a uh, partner in the Logan Law Firm of Hilliard, Anderson, and Olson. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you, Tom. Interesting experience. Well, very interesting experience uh, as well. Coming up the second half of the program, USU's assistant professor of journalism, Matt LaPlante, recently traveled to Cambodia looking at difficulties in family history there uh, in the wake of the genocide. We'll talk about that following the break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Conserving electricity can both help the environment as well as your electricity bill. Changing your habits can help reduce the amount of electricity you use. Embrace natural lighting. Open up your blinds and curtains to allow sunlight. Turn off the lights. As you leave a room, make sure to double check that all the lights are turned off. Use candles or low-lighted lamps. Use less hot water. Heating water takes up more energy than cold or warm water. Use ceiling fans instead of an air conditioner. Wash laundry in cold water instead of warm water. The average home pollutes more than a small car, so by following these simple guidelines, you can help save money and keep the air and water clean. 
This is Nicole Jackson from the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This part of the program, very interesting uh, article recently uh, for CNN from Matt LaPlante, who's assistant professor of journalism in the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University, uh, where he uh, took a look at uh, family history, specifically family history and genealogy, as practiced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Cambodia. And in Cambodia, there are some problematic aspects of this. Uh, Of course, we know that uh, civil war and one of the worst genocides in history happened there. That factors in. Matt LaPlante, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. So how did, how did you uh, how did you get on to this story? Um, so I, in kind of a uh, circular fashion, um, I, I have a, a really good friend who was working in Cambodia, and uh, I was planning on going out to visit him. And, uh, you know, while I was doing so, I thought, you know, like, I, anytime I travel, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about, like, what's a, what's a story that I can tell? What's a thing that I could do? And it, uh, it, it suddenly dawned on me uh, that uh, here was a place I was going to that, as, as very many people know, is, is one of the uh, places that has suffered one of the worst genocides in history. And yet I, almost, I knew almost nothing about it. I, I'd read very little of it in school. Uh, we didn't talk about it around the dinner table. Uh, I had never engaged in conversations about it. I hadn't read history books about it. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to see, like, if there was a connection that I could make between Cambodia and my life, which is something I'm always trying to do when I'm traveling and trying to tell stories. And um, in the process of doing so, of course, I, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm, I'm not much more than a stone's throw away from, from Temple Square here in, in Utah's capital, uh, which is the center of, of the Mormon universe, essentially. And um, I, I had heard that Mormonism in Cambodia was just exploding. And I thought, well, that's obviously there's, there's an interesting connection point there. And uh, as I kind of dived into that and, and started studying that more, uh, I came upon the realization that these family history efforts that are really important to Mormons uh, were going on in Cambodia, but they were, they were taking off very slowly. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about why, why it was such a struggle to do family history in Cambodia. So you say a fast growth of the LDS Church in Cambodia, but numbers are still quite small, I understand. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess it depends on how you look at things, right? It's, it's been the, the church got permission to start uh, evangelical efforts there just about 10 years ago. There's a smattering of uh, LDS people in Cambodia going back about 20 years. Um, but before that, there's no history of Mormonism in Cambodia, or, or very, very, very small history of Mormonism in Cambodia. It's a very predominantly Buddhist nation, of course. So, but figure in, in the last ten years, uh, we've gone from a, a situation where there were there were just a handful of people practicing Mormonism in Cambodia. Now there's about twelve thousand. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's pretty explosive growth. And this, as you say, there, the, this um, push, this I guess doctrine, this belief, uh, everywhere in the world that where the LDS Church is, they they preach family history. But there are some specific problems there in Cambodia. What are those? 
Well, okay, so first maybe just a little background for our, for any listeners who aren't kind of aware of this practice. Uh, I think it's, it's fairly well understood in Utah, particularly among, among Utah's Mormon population, and maybe a little outside of that too, but uh, there's a lot of people who probably don't know that the reason why people who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are uh, are... Uh, very interested in family history. Actually, there's many, many reasons people do family history, but one of the religious reasons is connected to this belief that through the practice of posthumous baptism, that's one person, a living person, standing in and, 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 and literally being baptized for somebody who's already passed on, uh, that Mormons can be connected to each other in the afterlife, and, and this gives uh, it offers the dead in, in their belief system the ability to uh, have a better afterlife. Um, and this has been controversial before. The, uh, the Mormon Church has been uh, very roundly criticized over the last 20 years for posthumously baptizing Holocaust victims. Uh, Anne Frank was posthumously baptized, uh, among many, many other victims of the Nazi Holocaust. Um, and uh, so, and, and the, the Church has tried to make amends for that. It, it, it has uh, issued rules that say that the Mormons are now only allowed to identify people who are direct descendants for posthumous baptism, but, uh, you know, the way that anybody, you know, anybody who knows family history knows that it doesn't take long in my family history, you know, for me to be connected to, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people. Um, and and this is a very important thing for Mormons to do, and it comes into conflict with, you know, people's perceptions about whether it's condescending or, or whether it's uh, um, I'm just plain crap. Um, you know, at the same time, Mormons uh, feel an obligation and, and, are, and are taught this obligation to engage in this practice. Um, and so when it has been, now that it, this practice has been brought to Cambodia, um, it's coming into conflict with some of those same sensibilities also. There are, uh, again, this is a predominantly Buddhist nation, and there are people, you know, the, most of the victims of the Khmer Rouge uh, genocide uh, were Buddhist, and there are Buddhists who think that, the, you know, the Mormons have no business trying to baptize uh, their family members, their, you know, these victims. They, they find it condescending, they find it rude, they... Um, on the other hand, uh, Cambodians are a very forgiving and tolerant people. They have to be. The genocide that happened there wasn't perpetrated upon them by an outside force. Uh, it was perpetrated upon them by members of their own families, by, by members of their own community, and uh, as part of the Civil War. And so they've had to learn this tolerance for beliefs that are different and even... Um, I, ideas that are might be insulting, um, and so uh, you know there's not a there's not a righteous indignation about this, but I, I would say it's, it's a little bit simmering. Is there is there a similar agreement then in in these countries, LDS Church? Um, for example, with uh, victims of the Nazi Holocaust, uh, the, the agreement is that you can only um, be baptized in behalf of your your own ancestors. Right. Yeah, I think uh, so. So the rules are the same uh, for people of the LDS LDS faith in Cambodia as they are for people of the LDS faith anywhere else. Which is to say that you're only supposed to submit names 
uh, of direct descendants. Um, one of the complaints that I heard um, is that those rules were developed in response to uh, problems that happened in relationship to the Nazi Holocaust. Um, and and, and uh, there are Cambodians who feel like they should have been consulted. It shouldn't have just been assumed that whatever was agreed upon with Jewish leaders in response to that last crisis could automatically be transferred and would work just as well in Cambodia. Now, in fairness, it does appear to have worked about as well, but, but there's some I heard some resentment there. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, problems, uh, moving on to some other problems with, with this, and uh, and you talk to some Mormons there who are dutifully, you know, doing their best. But uh, if you have a genocide on that scale, an upheaval of society on that scale, uh, seventy-five to seventy-nine, at up to two million people killed or or died of starvation, um, there, there's going to be lack of records, right? And you might find that Grandpa was <laughs> was part of the Khmer Rouge, right? And and you maybe you don't want to know right. that. Right, yeah. Um, so there's there's several problems. You've touched on a few of them. Um, you know, the the Khmer Rouge, uh, the Cambodians actually say Khmer, so if I oh, like, okay. couple into that, that's why. Uh, but uh, I think everybody in the Western world says Khmer. Uh, they systematically destroyed records, uh, as as you know, is want to happen in civil wars and, and other uh, war situations. Um, they also created records. So, so even though they destroyed a whole lot of records, uh, a whole lot of, uh, of, of uh, documents that could have helped people tie themselves back to their family histories, um, they also created, as, as militaries are wont to do, a, a whole bunch of records about their own personnel. So there is kind of a treasure trove of information out there that was created by the Khmer Rouge. Nobody wants to tap into that right now. People have kind of talked about it. They, you know, they said, oh, you know, they, there's some good stuff there. But when you open those records, what you're going to find um, is information about people who turned on each other, who participated in this, this absolutely horrific uh, civil war and this absolutely unconscionable genocide. Um, and there is kind of a cultural acceptance right now in Cambodia that while acknowledging and not forgetting, never, ever, ever forgetting what happened, um, with the exception of a very small number of senior leaders, uh, Cambodians would really like to put the personal, individualized responsibility for these crimes away. Uh, they have to, because still their, their uncles, their fathers, uh, their grandfathers, people who are still living, who are living in their homes or living in their communities, they might be next-door neighbors, were a part of this. And so going into this, uh, these records, which are available, which the keepers of the records have said they, they would be willing to be made available for people of the LDS faith, could open up some really, really uh, deep wounds. And, and um, so at least for right now, they've kind of stayed away from them. But at the same time, there's, there's pressure. There, there's religious pressure. There's, there's familial obligation that is felt on the part of uh, people of, of the LDS faith in Cambodia to try to do what they can do to determine who their relatives were. 
And uh, so this is one of the, the most kind of fascinating conflicts that's, that's playing out right now that I saw. Yeah, it, it is it is fascinating the way this plays out. It's, uh, you know, in say in, in Utah, you you go to do some family history re- research, and and generally it's uh, you know it's pretty neutral. But in a in a place like this, uh, um, could be problematic. Uh, so if yeah. you just if you just joined us, you're, we're talking with Matt Laplante. He's assistant professor of journalism in the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University, and uh, he recently uh, published a, a piece in C- at CNN. Uh, CNN.com, about uh, Mormon family history in Cambodia. And we're talking about this in this part of Access, Utah. One of, uh, it, it's just, it, you know, genocide is heartbreaking and it reverberates. And as you said, you, you, I guess you have to set up mechanisms just to try to deal with it. One of the things you put in the piece, uh, if you're researching your family history, some of the records that are available uh, are were kept by the the Khmer Rouge, but uh, perhaps that information was given up under torture by a family member. So there's a you know it's just just seems like these uh, these horrible reverberations that come come out. Right, like I mean, you could probably I mean we could try to imagine this situation. It's it's um, it, it's incredibly difficult. I'm sh- I'm sure to empathize because you know very few of us have been in this any sort of similar situation, but, you know, the, the Khmer Rouge was looking for people in family groups, right? They, uh, uh, rich families, landowners, uh, aristocrats, uh, educated people, college professors, and there was, there was systematic torture that went on to try to get people to reveal this information. People had changed their names, they went into hiding, they started dressing like peasants um, to try to assimilate and, and remain safe. And so, if, as you can imagine, as you're digging into your family history, if you, if you dig into your family history and you find out that your grandfather, um, you know, turned in his own father, turned in his own brother under torture, um, the, the damage that they can do to somebody's psyche, to their understanding of the family roots, it is not insignificant. Um, and so Cambodians have to weigh right now whether Cambodian members of the LDSA um, have to weigh right now whether or not, you know, the value of, of participating in this very sacred religious right uh, that, that Mormons believe in uh, is worth the sacrifices that they might make in terms of their own understanding and reverence of, of their family members. Um, now, increasingly, I should say, we talked about this in the, in the LDS perspective, but, you know, these records are available to everyone, and there are certainly people in Cambodia, um, even from non-religious uh, points of view, who say, like, we should know as much as we can about who our fathers and our grandfathers and our mothers and our grandmothers on down the line is. This is our history. Um, Cambodians have, have a deep and amazing and very, very long and majestic history, and and part of it has been lost and really um, given up because people are really in a position right now where the most recent history, the last 50 years, uh, are are difficult uh, to, to dive into, and a lot of people would just like to move past that period of their history. Here, here's a quote from your article. This just hit me, and it... it, it... I guess it's a universal uh, tendency. You talked with a physician, uh, Lim Kuki. I don't know how to pronounce it uh, correctly, but it mentioned 
that uh, uh, 60% of Cambodians are under the age of 30. And this is the quote. That is why, says the physician, if you go to someone who's uh, 18 years old and talk about how genocidal the Khmer Rouge was, she would say it's not possible. You must be lying. Yeah, um, there are lots and lots of efforts in Cambodia right now to make sure that the genocide is not forgotten. Um, At the same time, people who went through that period are reticent to talk about it. Uh, People who are growing up in Cambodia right now, which is this dynamic and interesting and artful and an exciting place to be, don't want their entire national identity to be about something that happened uh, uh, 40 years ago or longer. Um, they, they're developing a, a new culture, a new perspective of who they are. Like kids anywhere, they aren't always interested in history, and certainly not the, you know, the kind of the icky history, the, the tough-to-take history, you know, history that would require them to confront the fact that people just a couple of generations ago, their parents, their parents' parents may have been involved in some really really terrible things. And, and we see this everywhere, right? We, we don't like talking about the bad parts of our history. It's why Americans don't spend a lot of time contemplating what we did to the Native population on this continent. It's, uh, you know, we don't like thinking of the people who came before us in that way. We, we prefer to think of them reverentially, heroically. Um, and so we set those things aside. We might not ignore them altogether, but we set them aside. Now, as a result, there's a lot of Cambodian kids right now who are growing up, and they don't know about that part of their history. And because it is so horrific, it's it's unbelievable to them. And um, so when they do hear about it, when they are confronted with it, they often uh, choose to believe that it, it just couldn't possibly be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a natural response. Uh, is, are, is there anything institutionally happened or did happen? That, I don't know if they had a truth and reconciliation, you know, type thing, or is there something institutionally that's happening? Or Yeah, there are, uh, there are trials. Uh, there have been trials for uh, the last um, about decade here now um, of, of very senior leaders. Um, but, uh, you know, the senior leaders at the time were in, in Cambodia in the, in the Khmer Rouge time were, you know, in their 30s and 40s and 50s, and now they're in their 90s and, you know, 80s, 90s, and so there's not that many of them. So um, even though there has been kind of an institutional effort toward justice, uh, finding justice in Cambodia is really really kind of impossible at, at this point, which, which again, leads people to, you know, this place where it is maybe just easier just to accept that this bad thing happened and to accept that a lot of people around me might have participated in it, but, um, you know, also accept that there's, there's nothing that you can do. When 1.8 million people or more were, were killed, were tortured, were starved, were sent on the run, um, you know, we're, we're turned against each other. Finding justice in that kind of situation is, is, is all but impossible, and, and I think there's an acceptance of that in Cambodia. Mm-hmm. And there, there's that dilemma that's been faced by other societies that have gone through this, that, to, you know, we have to turn the page, but on the other hand, you, there's danger in turning the page. 
Completely. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and that's what a lot of people are talking about right now. Is how do we both move on and still hold on to this part of our history so that we learn from it and so that it never, ever, ever happens again? Mm. A couple last points, um, reaching the end of our, our time here. Um, this uh, goes beyond, as you point out in the article, uh, beyond uh, religion. Uh, you talked to the president of the Cambodian Diabetes Association. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a real big push right now uh, across the world for people to understand more about their family history because it helps us understand more about our uh, genetic propensity, uh, our genealogical propensity, our, our medical propensity for disease. And, um, you know, knowing what people went through in their lives um, can be very important. We're finding more and more out about uh, how life experiences can uh, can impact us at an epigenetic level. That is to say that it doesn't impact the genes that we have, but the expression of the genes that we have. And one of the big, big triggers for epigenetic expression uh, is stress. And, and post-traumatic stress has been shown to be an enormous, an, an enormously powerful expressor of genes uh, when it comes to disease. So you might, you might be genealogically predisposed to diabetes, but if you add to that post-traumatic stress, you can be even more, um, more uh, predisposed toward uh, getting diabetes. Now, the interesting thing about epigenetic expression is, is it can be passed down. Um, so what our, our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers experience can, can materialize in our lives as well. Because it's, it's, it's important for people to understand not just who their parents and grandparents were, not just uh, how they died, not just what diseases they had, but also how they lived. The more we learn about how they lived, the more we're learning that that, that really actually impacts us greatly uh, it, today. And, and there's a lot of medicine that's gearing uh, in that direction right now. Uh, here at the end of the conversation, we'll uh, uh, want to return to religion. That's where we started. So you talked to some Mormons in Cambodia. Uh, family history is a tenet of their faith, but as we pointed out, there are some uh, unusual uh, hurdles, you might uh, call problems, to, to face. What what are they saying? How do, What's their attitude? Uh, you know, the, the vast majority are kind of doing it reluctantly right now. They, they're told that they need to do it. Uh, they're told that it's an important part of their faith, but they're, you know, for very good reasons, they're a little reluctant. And, um, you know, the, the encouragement is to try to find three or four generations, try to find three or four generations. Uh, and I, I talked to a lot of people who've gone through the process, did their best. I mean, it was difficult given the lack of records and, and other uh, problems, but did their best to find three or four generations and then said, okay, that's good. Uh, I think the that happens anywhere, um, but there's certainly, I think, a, you know, and, and I've, I've found this, too. Like, it's endlessly fascinating. You get on these genealogical websites, and, and you, you know, you go, like, I want to find out what my grandfather's father's name was. And then, you know, you see all of these records and all of the, you know, and then you find out who his wife was, and then you find out who her mother was, and, you, and you're going further and further back. Um, and it, it gets exciting. It's interesting. It's like this historical uh, detective game. Uh, and you feel like you're learning a lot about yourself. Um, I think, at least for right now, there's not a lot of that in Cambodia. It's, this is still, for LDS people, kind of an obligation. Now, there's some people um, who've, who've learned a lot from this and, and for whom it's given them great peace. Uh, and uh, they, they like 
finding out about their relatives. But I think, at least for right now, it's um, it's it's a difficult thing to get people to do, uh, even when they have uh, religious and spiritual reasons for doing so. One more item, uh, just to, as we close here. I was interested to read in your article that um, I think this is the, the, the government is conducting oral histories. They're, they're trying to patch together their records with with oral histories. That's that's interesting. Yeah, there's uh, more than 6,000 recorded conversations right now uh, at the Documentation Center of Cambodia. It's been working for, uh, what, since 19, the mid-1990s to uh, recover the record and, and to build a record uh, that has been destroyed of the Khmer Rouge's uh, time in uh, in power in Cambodia and what happened immediately before that and immediately after that. Uh, they're doing that through oral history. These are another kind of untapped resource for people who are trying to find out more about their, their own personal history. Very interesting, and you can read all about it at uh, CNN.com. Matt LaPlante is Assistant Professor of Journalism in the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. He's been our guest in this part of Access Utah. Thanks again, Matt. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tom. And uh, hope you'll join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Shrimp in the desert landscape of Canyonlands National Park? Yep, you can find them. Fairy shrimp. When the rainy season arrives and turns dry, dusty potholes into water-filled rock basins brimming with life. A surprising array of creatures relies on these potholes for life, and one of the most curious is the fairy shrimp. These unique crustaceans are found in small potholes that dot sandstone outcrops found in America's southwest. Their eggs maintain resilience during the dry season, and when spring rains arrive, the shrimp hatch. There are more than 300 varieties of fairy shrimp the most common being the vernal pool fairy shrimp. These little guys measure between a half inch to one and a half inches long as adults. They can be found anywhere ephemeral pools are present, though the majority of their population resides in California and Oregon. Fairy shrimp vary in color depending on the menu found in their particular pool of residency, ranging from translucent to orange, even to blue. They also feature 11 pairs of legs to propel themselves upside down, or more scientifically, ventral side up. They also use these incredibly helpful legs to eat unicellular algae, ciliates, and bacteria by filter and suspension feeding methods. They filter feed by pumping water through filtration structures located in their multi-purpose legs, thus capturing the food. They also are adept at suspension feeding by plucking food floating in the water, again with their tentacle-like legs. They may also grab or scrape food from the surfaces of other things found in their vernal pool, such as sticks and rocks. But what's truly amazing is how fairy shrimp reproduce. They typically lay drought-tolerant eggs during the summer, then overwinter in the dried sediment on the pothole bottom. And these eggs hatch in the spring when the potholes fill with rainwater. However, if drought sets in, eggs can be transferred to other pools by floating in gusts of wind or being carried by a particularly curious animal. These eggs are tough and can withstand varying temperatures, drought, and even the test of time. Eggs in laboratory settings have survived intact up to 15 years before hatching. Under the right conditions, you can observe fairy shrimp in Canyonlands, Arches, and Death Valley National Parks. Canyonlands and Arches boast at least two species of fairy shrimp. The Packard fairy shrimp, also known as the Rockpool fairy shrimp, or the Arizona fairy shrimp, and the Great Plains fairy shrimp. 
Fairy shrimp hatch in the spring, right after the potholes and vernal pools refill with water. So that will be your prime time to look for these interesting creatures. As travelers, you can do your part to help the fairy shrimp by simply leaving their vernal pools alone. Drinking water, stepping in the pools, or touching a pool can throw off the entire mini ecosystem located in this fascinating habitat. And remember, our fingers are very salty, so even if you're using a gentle touch, do not put your fingers in a vernal pool, as it just might raise the salinity and throw off the dissolved oxygen percentage needed for the fairy shrimp to survive. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Aaron Copeland was from Brooklyn, a city slicker who captured and to a certain degree created what we think of as the sound of the old American West. We'll hear from his cowboy ballet, Billy the Kid, Corrado Rivares conducting the Artosphere Festival Orchestra on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at USU.